You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Naturally, the term burden of proof shares this ambivalence. In one sense, the one discussed in this section, it means the necessity of producing evidence satisfactory to the judge of a particular fact in issue. This burden is usually cast first upon the party who has pleaded the existence of the fact, but as we shall see, the burden may shift to the adversary when the pleader has discharged his initial duty. The duty of proceeding with evidence on an issue means the liability to an adverse ruling, a non-suit, or a directed verdict, if evidence on the issue has not been produced. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 316-316 of this podcast I just read for you a little selection from pages 635 and 636 from a little book, and by little I mean actually a fairly good-sized book, in the Hornbook series. The book is titled Evidence. The author is Charles T. McCormick. It looks a bit like a textbook. I think this might be somebody's law school textbook from the 1950s. West Publishing Company Law School Publications would seem to be a tell, though I can't quite be sure. Copyright 1954. Right before you get into the meat and potatoes, it says on one page, X to my wife, (laughs) which is funny. Dedicated to his wife, no doubt, because writing a book requires a lot of support, a lot of understanding, a lot of encouragement. If you are married, you have to consider your wife, in my case, being a man. And in order to do the thing well, do the thing successfully, your wife helping you, supporting you, encouraging you, allowing you to bounce ideas off of her is... Very helpful indeed, and no doubt McCormick had some help from his wife along those lines, Charles T. McCormick. I picked up this book several years ago. I don't even remember quite where, but some used book store or some goodwill. I found it sitting on the shelf, got it for a song. I figured at some point I might like to pick it up and glance at it and refer back to it. You might say... Garrett. It was published in 1954. It's a little out of date. But actually, that might be our saving grace sometimes. If we drift, as C.S. Lewis says, progress means going back to where you took the wrong turn and changing course. So maybe, just maybe, a 1954 law school textbook will come in handy at some point. But for today's podcast, I want to talk specifically about Molly Hemingway's book, Rigged. 
which I just finished up yesterday as I was working on laundry. I'm very happy to say all of our laundry is now caught up, except what is in the washer. It's not quite enough to make a full load. But once it is, the washer is already partially loaded, and we're good to go there. But we found the laundry room floor. It was quite covered between my working and my wife being in labor. And now with delivery behind us, Andrew Matthias Mullet in our midst, she's recovering. He's taking up her attentions as she rests, as God intended. And the kids and I, in order to keep from getting lost in books and 3D printers, we just built a 3D printer. By we, I mean my four older boys yesterday. And to keep from getting lost in video games and computer games and movies, we are trying to deep clean the house. That's a good way to get everybody pointed in the same direction to get some physical activity for a useful purpose. But as I was folding laundry, sorting laundry, putting it away, all that good stuff, yesterday I finished Molly Hemingway's book, Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections. And I give this one a four-star rating out of five. It is a good read. Not great, but good. Better than okay. Not quite as good as great, but it's good. It's pretty good. Publisher's summary on Audible reads, Stunned by the turbulence of the 2020 election, millions of Americans are asking the forbidden question. What really happened? It was a devastating triple punch, capping their four-year campaign to destroy the Trump presidency. The media portrayed a Democratic victory as necessary and inevitable. Big tech wielding unprecedented powers, vaporized dissent, and erased damning reports about the Biden family's corruption and Democratic operatives exploiting a public health crisis shamelessly manipulated the voting process itself. Silenced and subjected, the American people lost their faith in the system. Rigged is the definitive account of the 2020 election based on Molly Hemingway's exclusive interviews with campaign officials, reporters, Supreme Court justices, and President Trump himself. It exposes the fraud and cynicism behind the Democrats' historic power grab. Rewriting history is a specialty of the radical left, now in control of America's political and cultural heights. But they will have to contend with the determination, insight, and eloquence of Molly Hemingway. Rigged is a reminder for weary patriots that truth is still the most powerful weapon. The stakes for our democracy have never been higher. Copyright 2021, Molly Hemingway, and Blackstone Publishing. I will note as well, not just I myself think well of this book out of 537 ratings on Audible. It has a 4.9 out of 5 star rating. And of course, with this kind of work, you expect a certain demographic who is interested in the subject along certain lines to be reading it, probably you don't expect a whole lot of Democrats and leftists to 
pick up this book. Or if they would, maybe they wouldn't be Democrats and leftists anymore. But confirmation bias notwithstanding, people wanting to hear what they already think in somebody else's voice, notwithstanding, it is a well-written book. It is well-researched and well-argued and concise and clear and easy to follow and comprehensive and important. Now, I think for a lot of folks who are of the opinion that I am, you probably look at even the title for this podcast episode and think to yourself, what's the point? I weighed whether to read this book myself because I thought to myself, if it really is rigged and that's it, then why bother? I already know what I think on this. I don't need to hear my own opinion back to me in somebody else's voice. I don't need to be told that things are awful. I know that well enough. Why would I subject myself to the depression (laughs) and the fatalism? Why would I embrace that? But the reason I ended up reading this book anyway, despite some of those misgivings and second thoughts, is that we have a midterm election coming up this year. In November, all of the House seats are up for grabs. That doesn't mean that all of them are likely to change hands, but it is to say that all House seats are up for election. In addition to that, 29 Democrats have announced they are not running for re-election this year. 13 Republicans, last count, so have said they are stepping down, stepping away. They're going to hand the baton off to somebody else. But that is to say 42 reps, at least, will be fresh faces. And with that, do we potentially retake the House of Representatives for something saner, something in closer alignment with reality, with the laws that the Almighty God created the universe to follow? Do we perhaps regain some stability, some peace in the House of Representatives? Do we retake the United States Senate? Well, that seems all but certain. The Democrats have a thin, 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 thin majority, the thinnest majority you could possibly imagine. So thin, in fact, that even their own senators can't be relied on to help advance this radical leftist agenda. And so there's reason to be optimistic that maybe, just maybe, we retake the House and the Senate. But if it's at all possible that we do that, that we can do that, that we should try to do that. And I would say it is a good idea. It's a very wise course to remove Democrats, radical leftists, socialists from office and 
elect better representation. We need to understand what, in fact, happened in the 2020 election, and we need to learn from it. If we don't learn the mistakes, if we don't learn from history, as George Santayana said, then we will repeat it. And maybe that's just what it is. Maybe we will repeat it. But I'm not so sure about that. I don't think that's a foregone conclusion. Even Democrat pundits this time around are saying that Democrats are headed for a shellacking. They're going to get their electoral clocks cleaned. And so you come to Molly Hemingway's book, and if it weren't so fresh in all our minds and such a painful reality that we're living through right now, day in, day out, week in, week out, seeing what the Democrats are doing at home and abroad, this would read like a really compelling, interesting, fascinating history. I wish we were further removed from it. I wish I were reading the story of an election stolen from 50 years ago or 100 years ago. The quicker we can put this in the rearview mirror, the better we will all sleep. But that's part of the utility here. I was surprised to find, pleasantly surprised to find. Hemingway tells the story of why safeguards which were bypassed in the 2020 election were there to begin with. Why were the laws such as they were? Why were the standard operating procedures such as they were? It wasn't for no reason. And that's what makes the establishment Republican types poo-pooing concerns about election fraud so ridiculous. That's what makes Democrats claiming treason and sedition if you even want to talk about fraud in the 2020 election. So unbelievable. One would suppose that the talking heads had never read a history book and were completely unacquainted with human nature. But if you read Molly Hemingway, you don't just get a regurgitation of everything that happened. You have an organization of what happened and a reminder. And there's more than just a rehashing and a reminder and a retelling and a reorganizing. There's additional information in here that I didn't know. I didn't appreciate some of the behind the scenes timeline. And that's helpful too. It's one thing when you're looking at these events a piece at a time. It's quite another thing when someone puts them all together and connects those dots. I think Molly Hemingway does a very fine job of connecting the dots, not just bringing the dots to bear, but connecting the dots here in Rigged. So what do we do with this information? Well, I think for one thing, we, and I include myself in this, we need to get more involved in the political process at the local level, at the county level, at the state level. We need to be more invested in that. Now, I say that, 
and I'll just be completely honest with you, I don't know when I personally will have the time to be more invested than I am. This podcasting business is my good faith effort in that direction to be more invested. But I remember talking with a friend of mine during the 2020 election who was a political strategist for the Trump team. And I asked him, what can I do? Is there anything I can do to help? And his answer was, start showing up to meetings of the Republican Party in your area. Start showing up. Start paying attention. Colorado's Republican Party has been too old for too long. It's a lot of wealthy people who are a bit stuck in their ways. And they could use a shakeup. They could use a wake-up. Now, this is my comment on that, not necessarily Stephen Walsh's, though I'm sure, as smart a guy as he is, he would agree with me. What should be understood by shaking up your local political organization, your local Republican Party, is not the kind of nonsense that I've heard of and seen back in Sydney, Montana. Richland County Republicans was an organization I was invited to join, not to be confused with the official Republican Party organization in the county, but essentially it was the brainchild of a certain J.D. Hall, Jordan Hall, in Sydney, Montana. And folks in the area and outside the area who think very highly of him jumped on board because he's a firebrand. He is a fire eater and a bomb thrower. And sometimes it feels really good to see somebody get up and punch the stiff, pretentious, condescending, and entirely too conciliatory establishment types in the nose, rhetorically, for everybody to see. That can be really, really satisfying on an emotional level, at a deep, visceral level, when you feel like you've been sold out by those folks, taken advantage of by those folks, when you feel a bit like the common Scottish folk in Braveheart who show up to the battlefield to bleed and die if need be, to liberate your country from the yoke of tyranny, and the nobles are just there to cut a deal. As long as they come away with more land and better titles, that's all they care about. It can be really, really satisfying to root for a William Wallace character or who you hope will be a William Wallace character who's there to pick a fight. What are you going to do? I'm going to pick a fight. <laughs> but there's a difference between that short-term, emotionally satisfying, push-button, incendiary play-acting and sober judgment, which can lead to lasting change. And the scoffers who want nothing but bomb-throwing, but have no intention of ever 
putting on their big boy pants and actually doing the hard work, rolling up their sleeves and doing the hard work day in, day out to maintain what it is that needs building and the ashes of what they want to burn down. Those folks, at the end of the day, run the risk of hurting good causes more than they help them. The Jordan Halls, the Richland Republicans out there run the risk of damaging the pro-life movement, gun rights, efforts to decrease tax rates and regulatory burdens, campaigns to clean up our education system are actually hurt when somebody is just a jerk looking for an excuse. So when you follow through with my friend Stephen Walsh's advice to show up at your local meeting of the Republican Party or if there's a better one, by all means, point it out. I am not a registered Republican, last I checked. And if I am a registered Republican, I had a senior moment. I am content to go with a better option if there is a more conservative option, a more principled option than the Republicans. But the Republicans seem like they're the only realistic alternative. When you show up at a Republican Party event, Dress in a dignified way. Conduct yourself in a respectful way. Make clear arguments in a calm, measured tone. The anger is exhausting, and it's also a major turnoff. And it's also not particularly scary to folks who wanted you to get angry. They're not scared. Have you ever dealt with somebody who just enjoys getting under your skin? They enjoy getting the reaction. In fact, that's most of what they're trying to do. That's what William Wallace is doing for crying out loud. When he goes to pick a fight, he insults the English to get in their head, to throw them off balance. He knows precisely what he's doing. He wants there to be a fight, and he's thinking big picture in terms of what needs to happen. The Scots need to win some battles against England so that the nobles and the common people invest themselves. Why would you join in a fight that you don't think is winnable? That would be stupid. That would be dumb. That would be foolish. But if we can provoke a fight, if we can win a fight, well then, that's another story. Then we can prove the concept. Your job is not to get angry and to suppose that in getting angry, you have accomplished something. That is emotivism. Self-expression. You've bought into the postmodern, post-truth lie. Read Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl R. Truman. Authentic self-expression is not the highest good. Read the book of James. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Read the book of Proverbs. Even a fool when he is silent is esteemed wise. If there are two passages which should be taped to the bathroom mirror 
for a lot of the folks who are so passionate about turning this country around, having better representation, turning from our sins nationally, and seeking the good Lord's face. It's those two passages. I, I know you're trying to gin up the courage. I know, I understand you're trying to intimidate the would-be tyrants, the appeasers, the peace-in-our-time-Neville-Chamberlain types. I know you're trying to make a big impression, but you're hurting your cause. Tell me this, what was accomplished with January 6th? Whether it was all Black Lives Matter and Antifa infiltrators, whether it was feds, which I still think the FBI's answers to the very simple questions asked by Senator Ted Cruz in a hearing here a few weeks ago are pretty damning. The feds were there. They were instigating. It was entrapment. They unlocked the door from the inside, the defense attorney, for some of these defendants on trial for sedition, argues. It was a trap. And you walked into it because you weren't thinking clearly. Do you know what would really unsettle the would-be tyrants, the globalists, the mountebanks, the godless who want to rule over you? Do you know what would really send shivers down their spine? If you were quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry and steady, that's what would scare them. That's what would intimidate them. That's what would make them think twice about stealing the next election. Not something dumb that can then become the news cycle for the foreseeable. Don't give them the optics they're trying to get. Don't give them the narrative they're trying to weave. Don't give it to them. By all means, show up. By all means, protest. Emphasis on peaceful assembly. Now, I happen to know folks who are not so sure that protest needs to be peaceful. They question. And this is true on the right and the left. And this makes it increasingly likely, so long as that is something about which we are not sure anymore, that we will have a civil war in my lifetime in the lifetime of my children, and as many sons as I have, and with the temperament that we have, you know we would fight. And you know on which side. But I don't want it to come to that. I hope and I pray that it doesn't come to that. And I think this is something of which calls in the New Testament to pray for our leaders and those who have authority over us are derived and are derivations of. Pray for those in authority over you so that you can live in peace, is what the New Testament reads. So that you can have peace. Jeremiah 29, 7, Seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile. Take wives, have children, build houses. Raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Increase and do not decrease in the land. Pray for the peace of the city. Speaking for myself, 
I want new leadership, which predicates its involvement, its engagement in the political process on serving the good Lord and serving this nation, which I call home. I know no other. I've read about plenty of others, past and present. This is the only country I've ever known. This is my home. This is the city to which Yahweh our God has brought me in my exile. And you too, if you're an American. I want to raise my sons and my daughter in peace. And that's going to require that we seek peace and pursue it. Now we should, if pressed, line up on the right side. As much as it depends on you, strive to live peaceably with all men. That means it does not only and always depend on me. Turning the other cheek has to do with insults, rudeness, disrespect. But Romans 13 says, The governing authority does not bear the sword for nothing. A civil war, if it came to that, would be an ugly, bloody, brutal, awful thing. But the Republican Party won the first one. The Democrats lost. They've never gotten over it. They would lose a second one. And we would see to that by God's grace. The media has not changed its tune fundamentally. Big tech still is putting little asterisks on posts that even mention their pet issues. The Democrats only missed out on an opportunity to cement their fraudulent approach to democracy because two senators, one from West Virginia, one from Arizona, refused to vote with them, could not in good conscience regardless of the pressure brought to bear on them, the threats, the cajoling, the manipulation, the taunts, the insults, the smears. Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin should get a medal. May God reward and bless them for taking a stand on that. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that to be A Christian in America means to be a Republican or that to be a Republican means that you are a Christian. As I said, I am not a registered Republican. But woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who exchange bitter for sweet. We have in this country one party which is flirting with being woeful, light, And we have another party which is woeful, extra stout. (laughs) And so long as we sit it out because we have a kind of Gnostic attitude, we over-spiritualize, but in a certain sense, make a mockery of spirituality. We're so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. Are we so heavenly minded or are we lazy and passive and slothful and disengaged and disobedient? unfaithful, burying our talents in a field. Do you realize how greatly blessed this country has been and is? Do you realize how many talents 
God has left in our hands, like the master in the parable of the talents, to say, I'm not going to get involved in that is to bury a talent in the field. Now, it isn't to say we should become obsessed. It is not to be confused with our duty to make disciples, but it's an extension of our Christian testimony, how we engage on these things. Read the City of God by Augustine. Go on, read it. I read it. Read the Church Histories by Eusebius. This antinomian, just sit on our thumbs and wait for Jesus to come back mindset is not so pious and not so orthodox as we've been led to believe. And it doesn't mean that every attempt at engagement by Christians and supposed Christians has been well-founded, well-executed. Again, I point you to the example of Sydney, Montana, Jordan Hall, Richland County Republicans. Our engagement should not be jerk-for-Jesus inflammatory bomb-throwing. It should be calm, measured, respectful, dignified, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, giving honor to all to whom honor is due. The question needs to be always in our minds, what are we conserving? Should we be conservatives? What does that imply? It implies that there's something worth conserving. Should we be progressives? Why wouldn't we be progressives? Of course we have to be for progress. But again, it goes back to the C.S. Lewis quote. The man who thinks he's progressive but is going down the wrong road in the opposite direction from where he should be headed is not actually progressive until he turns around and goes back the way he came. Calling yourself a progressive, self-identifying as for progress, does not make it so. My wife is reading this book, Mere Motherhood. I haven't read it. She's reading it as she's resting. She shared with me some various quotes and reflections on the book so far. And I don't think that I would agree with everything that is in this book as far as sentiment, mindset, advice. Apparently it's popular. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. Even if she's not far off most of the time, I think we would draw some different distinctions in some various issues. But one of the reflections of this homeschooling mother, who by the time her youngest kids had grown up to high school age, she ended up sending them off to public school to finish up. One of her reflections was that conservatives weave their children into the culture. Radicals pull their children out of the culture. And my wife reads this quote for me, and I'm thinking about it for a second, like, hmm, which culture? What culture? Let's suppose in my neighborhood, we've got some bandana-wearing hoodlums. My now 13-year-old son was out riding his bike on the street last summer, and some guy pulls up 
starts yelling at my son. I wasn't there, but I heard about it after the fact. Yo, man, that wasn't really weed. Huh? Yeah, I want my money back. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I think you have me confused with someone else. Nah, man, I ain't playing. I remember you. You sold me that weed the other day. My son's just like, uh, no. (laughs) A conservative doesn't weave their child into that sort of culture. Not like that. Oh, lovely. Your friends want to swing by and pick you up. They're going to go on a drive-by. What's a drive-by? That sounds fun. Like Buddy the Elf. Nobody. (laughs) You don't weave your family into that kind of a culture. Now, what you might do, if you can zoom out, if you can scale back, not be so short-sighted, you say, okay, we are part of Western civilization. We are Americans. We have a particular cultural context. We are inheritors of Western civilization. As such, that is our culture writ large. So I'm going to educate you on American history. We're going to watch movies, some of which I'm going to point out to you nonsense parts. I watched The Jungle Cruise with my kids, and it's like, oh, well, a totally unnecessary to the plot endorsement of homosexuality and the LGBTQ in this character here. Totally didn't didn't advance the plot whatsoever, but they got their plug in. Let's chat about that. In some sense, that is our culture. But what does weaving my child into that look like? As a conservative, I might need to think a bit bigger picture. Hey, actually, why don't we read some books that were written around the time period that this movie is supposedly set in and let's think big picture here how about let's think in centuries instead of months and years and even decades let's think in centuries maybe we'll think in centuries and decades but let's not think in months and years so much we're going to build on what we've inherited and we're going to invest our talents and that'll mean that we recognize where An investment would not be a wise investment where you're not going to get a return. You're going to lose your money. You're going to lose your shirt if you invest it here. If we want to take this country back from the godless, which we ought to, for their sake as much as ours, (laughs) we need to be aware, engaged, sober, vigilant, intentional, studying to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed. Maybe reading a book like Rigged by Molly Hemingway. I would recommend it. I would. I would also recommend taking the advice of my friend Stephen Walsh. I haven't taken his advice yet. I know, I know, I know. I hope to. We've had a lot going on. I hope to. I intend to. Especially as my boys are getting older, I'd like to take them to some of these events once my wife is recovered and rested up. Maybe this year is a great year to start in on that. Maybe. We'll see. Don't want to add too much. Try and do too much. Overextend ourselves. Do several things poorly when we could do 
few fewer things. Well, I'll say this too. You want to make a big difference in the long-term health of this country. You want to build and conserve our culture, this country, America. Homeschool your kids. Homeschool your kids. Instruct them in morals and the three arms. Buy my book, and this is why we homeschool. I got to leave it there, though. It's a Sunday morning. We're going to stay home for just a little longer. My wife's not quite ready, and I'm not quite ready either with having done a bit of double duty. And my boys have definitely stepped up. My daughter has definitely stepped up to help, but soon, very soon, we hope to be back in fellowship as a family of eight children. But slow and steady wins the race. Patience. Patience is key. In closing, I'll leave you with a little snippet from the soundtrack for Braveheart. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.